This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's a landmark antitrust case, the most aggressive antitrust action against an American company in two decades. The U.S. Justice Department sued Google, calling it the monopoly gatekeeper to the Internet and accusing it of using exclusive deals costing billions of dollars to dominate search and lockout competition from rivals. U.S. Deputy Attorney General Jeff Rosen announced the suit on Tuesday. Google is the gateway to the Internet and a search advertising behemoth. Google achieved some success in its early years, and no one begrudges that. But as the antitrust complaint filed today explains... It has maintained its monopoly power through exclusionary practices that are harmful to competition. So the Justice Department has determined that an antitrust response is necessary to benefit consumers. But Google's Director of Economic Policy, Adam Cohen, defended his company's tactics in speaking to Bloomberg. We think this case is deeply flawed and risks harming American consumers. We compete vigorously in the marketplace. Our industry, our sector, is marked by prices that are free or falling and rapid innovation, and those are really hallmarks of a competitive industry. Joining me is antitrust law expert Harry First, a professor at NYU Law School. Let's start broadly, Harry. How would you characterize this lawsuit in terms of its significance? The lawsuit is very significant in this sense. It's been more than two decades since the Justice Department has filed a monopolization case. More than two decades since the Justice Department has taken on high tech. More than two decades since they've paid attention to this area. It's really quite extraordinary. So seeing them file a case, I count as a real positive. Explain basically what the government's charges are of anti-competitive conduct by Google. Well, the basic idea is that Google has monopolies. They allege three different markets, but... Basically, in the market for search and the market for some aspects of digital or online advertising. So the complaint alleges that they have a monopoly in those markets, they have very high market shares, and that they've maintained these monopolies not through legitimate competition, but through exclusionary agreements that fence out any potential rivals, any upstarts, and that they are continuing to do this as the technology evolves and, you know, we have the Internet of Things and we have wired cars and we have these personal assistants. But this is an effort just to keep control over, and in some sense, access to the Internet. It's not unlawful to be a monopoly in this country. And some people would say, Correct. well, Google is doing the things you can do as a monopolist. So what makes it illegal? So the law tries to distinguish between legitimate, even aggressive competition and competition that isn't on the merits, that tries to succeed by making sure competitors can't get to the market. So if you have a great product and consumers love it and everyone uses it, let's say, that's not a problem. And you can continue to innovate and bring out better features and lower prices, things like that. But if you take efforts to squeeze out your competitors by as this complaint alleges, some kinds of exclusive agreements which say, okay, Apple, for your iPhone, you have to make Google search the default. And we know that consumers don't change their defaults. You know, they keep going with it. This means that other search engines can't get traction, can't get enough people using their search engine to offer a good product 
and that fences out competitors, not because you're better, but because you have this agreement with Apple. So now Google's response has been that its conduct doesn't raise prices for consumers. And he also compared its search engine distribution agreements to a cereal brand paying a grocery store to be in the best position on the shelves. Is that a good response? Well, it's a response. Um, (laughs) Search to consumers, of course, is not priced in dollars. The complaint alleges that it's priced in other ways. We'll see how that develops in the litigation. They get your data, of course. That's really what they want. And it's priced in terms of your attention, you know, your eyeballs. You pay attention to it. But in the end, it's monetized, as the complaint says, by prices for advertising. You know, if they control you and access when they've got all these advertisements, um, monopoly share, they can charge higher prices for that. So that's one rejoinder to the, oh, but it's free. Isn't that great for consumers? Maybe not so free. And what about Google's analogy to a cereal brand paying to get better placement on grocery store shelves? As you were saying it, I was thinking, well, you know, usually the cereal maker doesn't own the whole store. Usually it's just a placement on a shelf. And if you've ever bought cereal, you know there's another brand right next to it. So it's true, they do pay for that. But the argument here is, well, Google owns all the shelves. And by paying for the best spot, there aren't other spots. Nobody comes into this store for something else. You know, if you were going to have the analogy, you'd say, okay, consumers can go to a different store, but it's not as convenient and they don't bother. So I've heard this analogy. I'm not sure how persuasive it's going to be legally. In the complaint, the Justice Department lawyers say that Google tapped the same playbook as Microsoft. How similar is this case to the Justice Department's suit against Microsoft decades ago? Well, the complaint itself says, as you say, that it's governed by the principles for Microsoft. And they're talking about the legal principles, I think, that the Court of Appeals applied in that case. So in that sense, the government wants to align with Microsoft, but also In a broad sense, this is similar to the kinds of complaints that the government made. Microsoft had a monopoly on Windows. It was threatened, and it made efforts to extinguish the ability of rival browsers, the Netscape browser, to reach consumers and get its product to consumers by forcing the people who bought browsers, which basically were the makers of computers, to install Internet Explorer rather than installing Netscape. So factually, it's similar. One of the interesting issues is that it's not identical. So the world of mobile phones is different from the world of desktops in 1998. Consumers may behave differently. The kinds of agreements are different. These are defaults, making Google search the default, but not the exclusive. So it's possible for consumers to have different search engines on their phones. And there'll be arguments about, you know, how do consumers behave and do they multi-home? Do they look at different search engines or do they end up sticking with Google because that's what's on their phone and they assume that's what they should use? Some legal experts say that this is a pared-down complaint to make an easier case at trial. What would the Justice Department have to prove at trial? Well, the Justice Department has to show that Google, in fact, has a monopoly in the markets that the government alleges are at issue. 
has to show that these really are markets. They talk about advertising. Well, you know, there's a lot of advertising in the world and a lot of different ways to reach consumers, even on the Internet. I've heard there's something called Facebook. <laughs> Facebook isn't mentioned in the complaint. There's advertising on Amazon. People do searches on Amazon. So there'll be lots of arguments about whether Google really is a monopolist or whether consumers have choices. So that's the first part. Are they a monopolist? But as you pointed out, that's not the end of it because it's not a violation of U.S. antitrust law to be a monopolist. So then the second part is, well, how do they maintain their monopoly position? Is it through anti-competitive agreements that exclude competition, you know, on some basis other than efficiency? Or is it because, as Google will certainly argue, it's got a great product. People like it because their search engine is really good. And their search engine is really good because there are a lot of people who use it and feed data into it. So this, if it ever gets to trial, this will be, I think, also disputed, and the government's going to have to show it's not competition on the merits. In this complaint, the Justice Department hasn't said what remedies it would like if it wins the suit. In Microsoft, they sought a breakup of the company. Is a breakup even on the table here? Well, the table hasn't been set yet. So in the original complaint that the Justice Department filed in Microsoft, there wasn't a specific remedy set out. And Litigants generally are pretty vague about what they want because they don't want to be confined by the time the trial ends to something they thought about before the trial started. So the complaint does mention the possibility of structural relief, which is somewhat unusual, actually, for government complaints to do. That's almost more specificity than I would have expected. So it is on the table. It's been reported that one possibility is making Google divest itself of the Chrome browser. I think that's yet to be seen, and it may very well be that the government has an idea but not a fully executed plan about the remedy it wants because, to some extent, it still needs to find out more information. There'll be discovery, and there's an idea of what you want, but accomplishing it is another story. The state AGs have been investigating as well. Is this going to set off a wave of other litigation from state AGs and private complaints, perhaps? Well, uh, a number of states um, joined this complaint. So um, uh, the states that have not, um, led, I gather at this point, by the Attorney General of Colorado, who's a very good antitrust lawyer and former professor of antitrust, um, uh, are still investigating and um, trying to decide whether they want to file their own case and what that case might look like. So um, they did issue, as I assume you saw, a press release yesterday um, commending this litigation and the close working relationship they have with the Justice Department, but we will see what will happen. Um, the state-federal partnership in these cases, well, we haven't had a lot of monopoly <laughs> cases. Um, so it's always a little touchy, um, and uh, this one apparently is as well. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, so I, I, it will not surprise me if the states, those other states, do file um, their own case and then move to have a try together with the Justice Department's case. Um, that's, that's yet to be seen whether 
um, that will be the case. Uh, as for private litigation, um, I, I'm not sure taking on Google is a big deal. Um, that some of the allegations have been well known for a while um, and um, private cases have not been filed. So I'm, I'm actually not looking for private litigation to happen at this point. Um, probably later if the Justice Department continues this suit and how it develops and maybe we will see some private litigants jumping in. But, um, uh, you know, and that did happen in the Microsoft litigation. There was a lot of private litigation um, that um, came about uh, as a result of uh, government um, suits against Microsoft. Is this a test in any way of the current antitrust laws? Well, every case may be a test. <laughs> um, I don't. So uh, as I read the complaint, the government is not trying to push um, and U.S. antitrust law uh, in some sort of new direction. They're, you know, uh, lawyers are by nature and training somewhat conservative. They're trying to bring this case within the contours of current law. Um, and as they tried to do in the Microsoft litigation. Uh, so, um, you know, it, 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 it may be a test of antitrust institutions. It may be a test of what you can achieve in terms of remedy the antitrust laws. Uh, but I think the basic structure is not um, something that the government is attacking in, in this case. So I don't think it's a challenge in that sense. We don't know how long this case will go on, but is this a case where the government is outmatched by the resources of the defendant, Google? Well, I haven't done the math exactly, but if you um, if you figure out the budget of the antitrust division and the budget of Google for litigation, outmatched might be, you know, might be a good word. Obviously, um, in terms of a comparison of resources, you're not going to match Google. You're not going to match any of these tech giants. The government, you know, historically, that's always the case. And still, the government managed to litigate against AT&T, against IBM, against Standard Oil at the beginning of antitrust law. So I'm less worried about that. Where, where I think this matters is Google knows a lot more about its business and its technology than the government does. That's sort of the nature of things. And this is always a problem, but it's particularly a problem in the tech area. It's a problem for understanding how search engines are put together, how the advertising is done, how it's priced. All of these things, Google knows what it does. The government has to find out. So that's where the problem comes in. Um, in terms of human capital, well, the government here, unlike in Microsoft, hasn't hired outside counsel. You know, I don't know whether that's a plus for the professional staff, you know, show of support or some indication that there's a lack of seriousness in this litigation. I don't know which it is. They'll need outside economics experts, but, you know, the government's been able to hire those in other cases. And I'm sure there are plenty of economists who would love to help out on the government side. So I think it's knowledge more than anything else. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Harry. That's Professor Harry First of NYU Law School. 
And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts or www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. Would you give the advantage to either side looking at the complaint? Put it this way. The core of the government's case is hardly startling. The European Union has already done this case. And the government could have filed this three years ago. So I think they've pleaded a case that's not a laydown case. But it's a plausible case, strong case. Hard for Google to say in the end, oh, we're not a monopoly in search. Oh, search isn't a market. I mean, if that's the core of their argument, they don't win that way. Where they might win is convincing a judge that they've got a darn good product that consumers like. And isn't that what the antitrust laws and marketplace competition is all about? Thanks, Harry. That's Professor Harry First of NYU Law School. The pandemic has affected every area of our life, bringing into stark contrast many areas of the law from bankruptcy to corporate governance. So how can law, governance, and regulation be structured to bring about a more just and fair legal system? Columbia Law Professor Eric Talley addresses those questions in a new podcast series called Beyond Unprecedented, The Post-Pandemic Economy, and he joins me now. Start by telling us about this podcast series and what you wanted to accomplish with it. Well, the podcast began began as sort of a brainchild between the uh, Milstein Center, which is a center that I co-direct at, at Columbia, and our communications team. And, and, and part of the idea was that, you know, everyone is so caught up in the dynamics of the current set of crises. But one of the things it seems to all of us that we need to be looking out for is how do we reimagine and reconfigure the way that, you know, we organize laws and institutions and regulations as we come out of it. And so it, it was almost sort of an organic process by which we, we really wanted to go beyond the current unprecedented events. And that's how we came up with the title, Beyond Unprecedented. Let's start with one of your podcasts was on income inequality, which certainly is more and more in our conversation lately, especially with the elections upcoming. How did the law contribute to income inequality? It's a great question, and there are a bunch of different ways that it has. And you are exactly right to note that, you know, I think just about everyone would agree that wealth and income inequality has become almost one of the defining features of our time, whether you're an economist, a political scientist, or a lawyer. So one of the things that we end up spending a lot of time doing, and particularly myself, I will say, is, you know, I teach business law, which on some level can be thought of as a very large, ornate field for trying to structure organizations and and businesses in large part to create value, which from a business's perspective is, how do you minimize your tax liability? (laughs) That's a big chunk of it. And guess what? It turns out that many of those structures that corporations or large, you know, limited partnerships or venture capital funds use for limiting their tax liability, they can carry over almost directly to family trusts, to family owned businesses. And if you are a person of considerable means, it can be a vehicle by which to not only manage things like tax liability, but also protect those assets against any, you know, problematic, you know, creditors or downturns that that one sees later on. So the well-heeled in the United States and across the world, this is not news to them. This has been a set of structures that have been 
routinely utilized by uh, particularly wealthy individuals and businesses over the decades. Um, and in fact, in some respects, many of the tax reforms and business reforms that took place starting in the late 1970s and through pretty much 2000 added more fuel to the fire. It became possible not only to utilize some of these structures and tax protection devices, as long as you're you know, wealthy enough to, to make it worthwhile, but also to almost, you know, almost weaponize it in some ways, that, uh, that it, it, it almost had an accelerating feature on, uh, on how you know, opportunity and wealth were distributed in a, in, a kind of a, in a kind of a lopsided way within the United States as well as the world. And you know, it, it's, a, it's a hard issue to tackle in part because uh, you know, part of those wealth creation moments were probably also social value creation moments. They were innovation. They were new businesses that were being put into play that I think anyone would say, yes, this is added to the welfare of the United States and the world. But it, by, in the same moment that it did that, uh, th- that added productivity, that added growth also seemed to increasingly divide towards uh towards uh, the investor class. And, uh, and you know, we found ourselves even before this pandemic uh, you know, began on the heels of a, of a decade-long uh, migration that was often aided and assisted by some of these legal and tax structures uh, to put us, ourselves in a position where, you know, we haven't seen this kind of, uh, of uh, lopsided form of wealth and income distribution uh, since the 1920s. Uh, and it, it carries over not just into that context, but there are also many other sorts of follow-on uh, artifacts of it as well. Uh, education and schooling tends to um, tends to track some of these uh, some of these features. Uh, and nutrition, health tends to track some of these features as well. So uh, it, it it in many respects, I think, is is of all the all the episodes, one of the biggest and toughest eggs to crack. Speaking of cracking that egg, what can be done to address income inequality in our country? Well, one of the things that will come out when you listen to the to the episodes is that there is not going to be a magic pill that we take and suddenly wealth and income inequality problems are going to be gone. I, I just don't think that that is uh, – neither of my guests in the podcast episode and, and I don't think that that's a, a realistic possibility. That having been said – uh, it seems to me that there's growing and coalescing support behind a couple of different things that might work. First, it turns out that even though many of these di- different types of business and tax structures have over the years systematically favored uh, the well-to-do and the people who could sort of afford to engineer them, once engineered, they're not that hard to copy. So there are definitely some ways that uh, that some of these structures can be incorporated into ordinary um, individual finance, uh, not at the you know ten million dollar net worth level, but at the far at a far lower uh, net worth level. So on some level, this is you know access to reasonably good legal advice and how to navigate these very very same structures that the well-to-do have been able to to navigate for years. Now that's obviously only one uh, one piece in the bucket. There is now, I think, growing impetus for trying to figure out how not only to engage in some sort of support, of particularly of the lower middle class and the and the and the poor, but also to do so in a way that that is going to um, is allow them to, to to be retrained for what is a you know a, a changing workforce and and one that is probably changing uh, you know more dramatically than it has in my life. And I think the pandemic, on some level, when you think about 
the, the effects of the pandemic. It doesn't take too long for you to open up the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times or the New York Times to read an article that says yet another industry that had been focusing on, you know, an awful lot of a, a mix of, of person power and, and automation has decided to go fully automated because, uh, you know, slowdowns uh, due to COVID uh, make the economics of automating appropriate right now. So, you know, my sense is that the crisis, the, the, the pandemic is going to send us even further into a, a type of a transition zone where uh, even, you know, jobs, manufacturing jobs that we thought were likely to be populated by humans for years to come are now going to be accelerated in that automated fashion. And and that doesn't mean that there won't be other employment opportunities. In fact, nature abhors a vacuum in this regard. But it will mean that the types of employment opportunities are going to be different than the types that we saw even seven or eight years ago, uh, if in fact this the, this pandemic ends up you know visiting the types of transformation that, that a lot of people think are going to happen. The pandemic has led to a number of bankruptcies, and we see small businesses closing all the time. One of your podcasts is entitled Making Bankruptcy a Better Tool for Resilience. First of all, what are the major problems that you see right now with the bankruptcy code? Yeah, well, this was a fascinating, uh, this is a fascinating episode of the podcast. And, and one of the things that's interesting about it is that uh, that when this pandemic started, I think people were expecting to see uh, just a cavalcade of, of bankruptcies. And while there has been a little bit of an uptick, particularly with, with, with some larger firms, it's been way smaller than people expected it to be. And I think that may be in part um, simply because we bought ourselves time with the CARES Act and, and the uh, payroll protection program that, that essentially allowed some businesses to limp along probably until, you know, December of this year. Uh, things like uh, forbearance on, on various types of, of leases and mortgages as well. Um, that having been said, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that there are an awful lot of people that are in fact predicting that the, the rate of filing of bankruptcy is going to go way up. And there's also a shadow bankruptcy system. There's a, there is, a, you know, bankruptcy is really just the legal proceeding by which an insolvent person restructures their debts. But, uh, but knowing that that may be on the road ahead often gives rise to almost uh, any type of, of private restructuring that you can possibly imagine. And so, so one of the areas that, uh, that is, is really kind of fascinating to think about is, you know, how do you design bankruptcy laws not necessarily so that the bankruptcy process itself is the is the key focus, but also how to help facilitate some of those private decisions to restructure. And we get the sense that a lot of that has been happening over the last six months. But let me give you an example of one area where bankruptcy law um, has not done a particularly good job of trying to figure things out. Uh, there are, uh, you know, and, and, and the example might be in various types of uh, securitization. What I mean by a securitization is just, you know, maybe someone, uh, you know, has borrowed money for um, a mortgage for a commercial property and their mortgage is put into a pool with a bunch of others and then the cash flows from that entire pool are sold off. Well, it turns out that that structure, which has been around for a long time and, and very much contributed to the last financial crisis we had, is a very rigid one. There are so many parties involved and there's this sort of master contract that governs when and under what circumstances uh, those things can be restructured. In an environment where you didn't have all those things thrown into a pool and locked into a securitization system, it would be 
somewhat easier to restructure the mortgages to kind of alter the terms in a way that would allow them to be paid back in a, in a, in a way that better accommodates the current economic crisis. But those structures are hugely rigid. And so there is a definitely a, a lack of information about what they look like and a, a real lack of, of a perceived ability to kind of induce the restructuring of those sorts of contracts. And, and it hasn't played out yet. There's a reasonable chance that that kind of a horror show that we saw play out in the 2008-2009 financial crisis could recur again, where um, you know no one's able to really restructure their mortgages, their cash flows have gone way down because you know, you know economic operations and economic activity is much lower, and it ends up almost forcing people either into insolvency or bankruptcy. So one of the things that that uh, that you know I, I think you know bankruptcy scholars and you know also commercial law you know policymakers can think about is how can we you know how can we you know, reconceptualize these deals uh, that that makes them a little bit more resilient in the face of a, of a system-wide economic crash. And, you know, on some level, it's a little embarrassing that we weren't able to solve this, given that we went through a financial crisis 12 years ago and exactly the same issue occurred. So related to this is small businesses, and you have a podcast called Helping Small Businesses Survive and Thrive. This is a really tough time for a lot of small businesses. And, you know, if you look in your own neighborhood, you're bound to see small businesses that have closed. Yeah, absolutely. This is a this is a, a big issue and it is closely related to the bankruptcy issue. You know, I, I live right by Columbia Law School and we're up in, in you know northern Manhattan in Harlem and, and th- this was this is a vibrant area of entrepreneurs opening restaurants and coffee shops and stores and, and and that's been underway for many years and uh and uh, many of the local residents around here and local businesses have really taken in the chops uh during the course of the uh, of of this particular crisis and it's exactly the group of of businesses that you would think the businesses that end up relying on uh you know a business model that requires people to congregate in some area you know fitness clubs and cafes and uh and and and, and bars and some restaurants uh, there's there have been other ones that uh, that in fact have uh, probably done a little bit better things uh, you know, things having to do with you know home delivery services and so forth. But on the whole, it's been very very difficult for a lot of these entrepreneurs to make it through. Now, some of them took advantage of the payroll protection program and were able to you know make make it this far you know uh, paying uh, their their employees uh, with the assistance of some of these grants. That were made uh, by the federal government, but those are about to run out. And in addition, a lot of these businesses just realize, look, we, we're not going to be generating revenue in this, you know, in this bar or restaurant or or, 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 or gym for, for for months, if not years, and, and they just shudder. And so, you know, if you if you look at some of the more reliable, you know, databases on small businesses like Yelp. Uh, it's a it's an astounding number of small businesses that are not just temporarily closed, but are permanently closed. Um, and so, th- so th- this is in, in in many ways one of the biggest tragedies of the current of the uh, of the current uh, you know situation. Uh, there may be some benefits on the uh, uh, you know going forward, but I think they would also require a little bit of of, of attention from a legal and regulatory perspective. So, for example, um, one of the things that uh, that is you know if, if you're a owner of a of a vacant commercial 
uh, you know, space that you were, you know, thinking maybe I'd like to lease out to someone who's thinking about opening a business, uh, but you've been leasing it for, you know, $50,000 a month, and now it's going to be really hard to lease it for anything more than $30,000 a month. Um, it may, in some circumstances, be more profitable just to leave it vacant, to leave it, um, to, to leave it shuttered, um, and uh, use those tax losses to offset gains that you have somewhere else. Which on some level is a little bit crazy, but but you know our tax code system sometimes rewards uh, owners who who really just don't want to to, uh, to, uh, to 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 you know rent their commercial properties at anything lower than their historical value. Uh, and there are some uh, legal reforms that can be helpful in doing that. San Francisco is about to you know is is, is implementing a, a a vacancy tax for uh, for 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 business owners. Say, look, it'll also be costly for you to keep those businesses vacant. Um, another thing that's probably worth thinking about is uh, these entrepreneurs who have gone out of business, a lot of the value of those business businesses is in the entrepreneur himself or herself. And so I think there is a sense in which some of these folks, they are going to be back in business. It may not be exactly the same business or it may not be cast exactly the same way, but the very same imaginativeness and creativeness and, and, uh, and grit uh, is out there. Um, and one of the key things that we need to think about is how do we facilitate that resurgence when it occurs? And, you know, some of these, uh, you know, uh, you know, ideas on how you would incentivize commercial you know, real estate holders uh, to welcome back these folks as they try to open up businesses is a key part of the equation. Thanks, Eric. That's Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. And you can listen to his podcast series, Beyond Unprecedented, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Columbia Law School's website. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts or at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. Thank you.